Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a show for 20-somethings that are trying to figure out adulting. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Each episode, we focus on solving a problem that we will face throughout this defining decade that wasn't covered in the classroom. This could include topics about our career, health, relationships, and money. Let's get into it. I get it. Investing is complicated, but does it need to be? Starting your investing journey can be super overwhelming, especially in this age of information overload. Stocks, crypto, FANG, options, bonds. This brings me to the obvious question, what should I invest in? For me personally, I want to understand what I'm investing in, how it creates value, and ultimately what my return will look like. This has led me to today's guest, Jeremy Schneider. Jeremy is the founder of Personal Finance Club. He has a wildly popular Instagram by the same name where he dishes out simple, unbiased information on how to win with money. Jeremy doesn't have any get-rich-quick advice for you today, but he will share a simple two-step plan to retire in 15 years. Along with that, you'll hear his delineation between investing versus speculating, how to easily invest through target date funds, and his experiment living on a $5 versus $500 daily food budget. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the 36-year-old retiree and personal finance crusader, Jeremy Schneider. Well, Jeremy, super excited to have you on the podcast. I was telling you a little bit before the show started that you are my favorite personal finance content creator. So thank you for agreeing to come on. I found you at a really good time in my life where I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into personal finance. Always been aware of personal finance, my personal finances, but not necessarily knowing some of the tactics or even concepts that that you frequently talk about. So really excited to, to dive into some of those things today, Jeremy. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I love talking about this stuff. So let's go. <laughs> let's start off with rent links. So you went to college for computer programming and interned at Microsoft for two summers and then decided post-college to turn down an offer to go work full-time for Microsoft and instead started your own company called RentLinks, which if people uh, feel free to add some some detail or content uh, context to this, but it's like HubSpot for apartments essentially or landlords um, where you you're a single source for them to come with their vacancies and then you post those on multiple listing sites, which sounds really great and grand, but I know that wasn't your initial concept out the get-go. Let's talk or let's start with the story of how you made your first sale. Sure. So yeah, I started this company in college. I turned down a job offer for Microsoft and decided to start my own thing. I had no clue what I was doing. I literally was like very concerned about how to the logistics of how to even start a company. Like, do you have to just like shout it to the streets? I'm starting a company or like a forum you fill out or something. It turns out there are like a couple of forums. You just Google them and you figure it out. And it's not that big of a deal. Um, the hard part is like getting people to give you money. And so in those early days, I was like hungry, like both literally and uh, uh, metaphorically. And um, I needed to make money to eat. And so um, one of the things I did was my previous landlord had has this or had this website that was like god awful it was like it was like someone had taken a a new word document and times new roman but like crazy different fonts and colors and just typed this like 100 pages long one page list and they had like 100 different properties that you were supposed to like look through this long list to try to figure out what was what and so i made them a new website without asking them just like on my own it took me like 3 days of hard work when i was like really gung ho about like working long days 
And then I sent it to them and said, hey, I'm a former tenant. I made you this new website. Do you want to buy it? And I heard nothing. It was just like crickets. And I was like, oh, what a bummer. And like, it wasn't that big of a deal because I wasn't making money anyway. And so three days of work down the tubes, like, you know, go on through life. But I was like, oh, I'm like so par- like paralyzingly shy. But I was like, I should just call them and at least like make sure that they saw it. And so I like worked up the courage, like called them on the phone. They answered. I said, hey, I'm Jeremy. I'm a former tenant. I sent you an email with a new website I made for you. Did you see it? They said, no. I was like, oh, I was like, can I send it to you again right now? And they said, sure. And so I did. And then uh, again, it was like radio silence. But I was um, tracking who was connecting to the website on like, it was like literally my living room, like, because I didn't even have like a spare bedroom. And I could uh, see how many people were connected to the website. And it was like zero, of course, because no one knew about it. And then after we hung up, it went to one for like 30 seconds. And then went back to zero. And then again, it was quiet. And I was like, well, I called, you know, I like worked through my fear of that. But then the phone rang and he was like, he's like, this looks great. We'll take it. And then he said, how much does it cost? And I had like make up a price on the spot because I like had never... I don't know. We didn't think we'd get there so fast. I had no idea like what the sales cycle was like. But sure enough, I like, made up a price. I was like, I think I said $3,000, which was a crazy high amount of money and $300 per month, which is even crazier high. I'm like kind of proud of like, you know, insane 21-year-old Jeremy or whatever who made up those high prices. And he actually, he thought the monthly price was fine and asked if I could do $2,000. And I said, no problem. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that was my first sale. Dang, that's cool. So you got to eat for that month, it sounds like. Yeah. And, and very quickly, I went from depressed about the opportunity to saying, oh my gosh, if I could, if I could have 10 customers all paying 300 bucks a month, that'd be $3,000 a month, which is like more money than I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, mm-hmm. So that's like one of the emotional roller coasters of entrepreneurship is like a good day. You start, you know, seeing the opportunity, but then a bad day, it just feels like it's all going to fall out from underneath you. Yeah. Did you continue to do that like guerrilla sales tactic? I, that was so genius for your first sale. Um, I, I was really impressed whenever I heard that story. Well, I mean, it only sounds impressive because you asked about my first sale, not my first non-sale. You know, I'm sure I did lots. <laughs> I mean, I, I did do lots of stuff that didn't work too. Um, but for sure, after I sold that one, I was like, I was like, oh my God, that was easy. And I already like built this site. So now I just need to like change the logo at the top and then type in all the new property information and then to sell this to every landlord in the city. And then I'm rich. Um, and I did, you know, and I mean, I didn't sell it to every landlord in the city, but I did do it to a lot and I ride really hard. I was like, you know, worked locally all the, you know, I'd go meet them at their like local apartment association meetings and I ended up selling this kind of same thing to a lot of people locally. And then by getting to know that, that, uh, customer base and that industry, I ended up kind of forming the, the, uh, the company that you described. Yeah. Which makes sense. I, I, so. So see how that that grew and where you got to where you were. And of course, you were an overnight success, just 10 years in the making here. So um, fast forward to, I believe you're around 36. You ended up selling your company for $5 million, only owned 70% of it. So you didn't quite get that $5 million. And then of course, Uncle Sam um, wanted his payout as well. So I believe you came out with roughly $2 million. And at that point in time, you established that you were financially independent. Is this correct? That's a pretty pretty accurate accounting that's like uh you got the numbers almost all right yeah i was actually okay. 34 when i sold the company five million dollars my share after taxes was about two million and then i worked for the company that acquired us for two more years 
And then at 36, yeah, that's how we get to 36 is when I quit that job and retired. Um, and yeah, so my net worth when I retired was, I'd have to look it up. I think it was mm-hmm. like in the mid to high two millions. Um, and yeah. yeah, I haven't had a job since. And I, I, if I get this right, I believe you were quoted in like a college newspaper saying that you wanted to retire by 25. You missed your mark a little bit, of course. Um, but, but you were still so young when you retired. I'm interested, what, what changed about your approach to retiring between 25 and 36? That's, you really going back to the archives. I posted that to Instagram like <laughs> two years ago and it was not a very popular post. Um, so yeah, I think you're the first person to ever have noticed that. Yeah, so I mean, when I, I think when I was, so I ran track in college and so I like was in, you know, in the local college newspaper sometimes. And it was also like the year was like 1999 or 2000 or something like that when like the dot-com boom was like at its peak or the dot-com bubble, whatever you want to say. And so it just, and I was in computer science. And so it just seemed like there's people are, you know, all you have to do is like think of any idea, do a mediocre job at it. And three years later, you get millions of dollars. And so like 25 seemed kind of like conservative, you know, um, if anything. Um, but but again, that was from that perspective, from the perspective of someone who's 41 now and knows that I was a 21-year-old idiot. Um, you know, first of all, the dot-com bubble busted. So then from 2000 to 2002, the market went straight down, money dried up. And like, that's when I started my company. And then of course, we had the financial crisis in 2007, 2008. So it was kind of like that 10 years where I was like starting my company was like this like relatively tumultuous time for the uh, the market. Um, but yeah, like you said, it, I kind of learned that overnight success takes a decade. And even if I was, you know, even if what I just described, you have like a half-baked idea and someone gives you millions, like usually that isn't just someone who's just like a crackpot off the street. Usually it's someone who's been grinding and failing for years and years. And then they finally have like figured out something that, that eventually clicks. And then it looks like they just became an overnight success. When in reality, there's like a lot of, you know, learning and grinding and failing and iterating that, that precedes that, that people don't see. You make investing sound pretty easy, but of course, there's a lot of hard work that goes behind the scenes too. I don't think it's overly complicated. And I do want to turn the conversation that direction now. Great. So one thing I see, I see a lot of my friends um, and, and some listeners I hear, they're not sure what to do with their money. So it ends up sitting in their bank account and they're saving their money, but they're not technically investing their money. Why is it important that you invest your money and not save your money? Well, I'll tell you a story about why. So let's tell a story about Ashley and Amanda. I know that you've seen my Instagram. I love these little simple emoji comparisons. So let's say Ashley and Amanda both save $500 per month. And Ashley, all she does is puts it into a savings account and she gets a 2% rate of return, which is pretty good. And they both do this. And then Amanda will say invest and we'll get to Amanda in a second. But so Ashley saves her money for 40 years. She saved up 500 bucks a month times 40 years that equals $240,000, which is a lot of money. So that's like how much she actually saved if you put it under the mattress or whatever. But she was actually getting a 2% rate of return, which like at right, right now in savings accounts, you can't get anything near that. So that was that's like overly optimistic. But you know, historically, it's not crazy to think that a savings account would pay 2%. So instead of ending up with $240,000, Ashley actually ends up with $365,000. So that's a $125,000 of free interest over her 40-year career. Not bad. But Amanda invests in index funds, and she gets a 10% rate of return. 
And so her 500 bucks a month doesn't turn into 240 or 365. It turns into $2.9 million. So we're talking, you know, almost 10 times more. And that sounds like kind of just a make-believe number. How do you get 10%? Well, let's say she didn't actually just get a magic 10%. Let's say she invested in the U.S. stock market just starting 40 years ago until today, the, you know, the previous 40 years. She actually wouldn't have gone 2.9 million. She would have gone about 4.1 million because the previous 40 years of the market, it's returned about 11%. And so you know, we hear about the market being volatile and it going up and down and it, and it being risky and there being stock market crashes. That's basically all nonsense. The truth is, over long periods of time, the market returns huge values to the owner. And over short periods of time, there's volatility, like temporary short-term ups and downs that you need to just, you know, weather the storms through, hold, hold on. But if you're a long-term investor, uh, doesn't matter. So that's why you invest, because 365, 40 years from now, isn't enough to retire. 4.1 million. Now we're talking about, okay, we can retire extremely wealthy, retire early, have options. That's why you got to invest. Yeah, I would say that uh, 365 probably isn't quite getting me out of bed. And I'm not too excited about that. Um, if but considering I did 240 of that whole 365, but 2.9 million, even if we take the baseline average of 10%, that gets me pretty excited. So I am pretty pumped about investing now. But I've heard the word investing and lots of different things come to mind. There's crypto, there's gold, there's, you know, businesses, there's all these kind of things, stocks, bonds, blah, blah, blah. What is the difference between investing and speculating? This is like one of my favorite distinctions to make. And I'm like, this is like one of these new hype trains I'm on speculating versus investing, because everything that you basically mentioned, like pork bellies and futures and options and day trading and crypto and all this stuff, like guys in Wall Street frantically holding white pieces of paper over their head and, and shouting buy and sell. Like that's what we think of when we think of investing. And it's a very scary way to step into it, or like a scary world to step into. But none of that is actually investing. That is all speculating. That's all just guessing what's going to happen next. And people think that when they hear investing, they think you have to guess what's going to happen next and decide when to get in and out of crypto, what, like, which business to invest in, if you should buy or sell your options. But that is all guessing. Investing is something totally different. Investing is buying something that is likely to go up in value over long periods of time and will definitely pay a dividend or, uh, or rent while you own it. And so investing is simply just that buying and holding of an asset. That's what investing mm -hmm. is. And it's much less scary than speculating because I can buy the house next door to me and put renters in there and then they can pay me rent and I'm, I'm an investor. And just holding it for decades will make me fabulously wealthy because the renters will be paying rent, the house will be appreciating in value, the mortgage will be being paid down. And the same is true for the stock market. If I just buy the entire stock market and hold it for decades, then all of the companies of the US and of the world will be going up in value and paying dividends and profiting and innovating and growing. And all I have to do is sit there and own mm. it. That is what investing mm. is. That makes sense to me. So all of the noise out there around crypto and when to buy, when to sell, options, when to buy, when to sell, we should ignore that entirely. And we should focus on long-term um, investing and thinking about and investing in things that are going or more than likely going to increase in value and, and give some of that value back to the people that are invested, which leads me to probably one of two paths. Um, stocks or a combination of stocks and bonds and or rental, um, rental properties or investment properties. 
let's sideline investment properties right now. I think that's probably a whole nother animal in itself. And we'd probably need a little bit more time for that in general, but let's double click and really go deep on, on stocks. Um, Perfect. This leads me to a question on how do I know what stock to buy? What com- how, do I, how do I figure out what's a good company and what's a bad company? So there are lots of ways to analyze a company and you can look at you know, their profit, you can look at their future growth potential, you can look at their debt, you can look at their, um, you know, the size of their market, you can analyze a company to death. But there's kind of some good news in that, in that we don't have to do that work. Because stocks don't trade based on what they're worth. They trade based on what the sum total of human knowledge thinks they're worth. Mm-hmm. And it's called the efficient market theory, which is basically, I can look at Apple and decide it's a good company, but I don't get to buy Apple for the value of the company. I have to buy Apple stock from other people who are trading stock and so someone who's selling the Apple stock. And so if I go to someone and say, hey, I've done the math. I've looked at their books. I've looked at their growth potential or whatever. I think Apple stock is worth $100. Please give me your share of Apple stock for $100. They would say, no, I'm not going to. Other people are paying $350 for it right now because everyone thinks Apple is way better than you think, than you think it's currently worth. Mm. And so you, you don't get to buy a company for what it's currently worth. You have to buy it for what it's trading at. And that what it's trading at is based on the sum total of all human knowledge constantly being baked into those prices. That's good news and bad news. The bad news is we can't just do a little bit of research or scratch our chin and think what's a good stock and go buy that stock and have it do great because the market's efficient. That's the bad news. The good news is we don't have to because we can just buy any stock or even better yet, buy all the stocks. And that guarantees us to get the fair market value of all those stocks. And then without doing any of the research, just by owning them all like investors who buy and hold for decades. Yeah, but let's say that I believe that I'm smarter than the ordinary investor, which <laughs> circles around to these, these uh, when I was researching you, what the actual individual investor is up against. And you mentioned there's like crazy companies out there, like um, satellite research companies that will literally look down and see how many trucks are pulling vehicles out of Tesla's factory. So they know um, based on, on that, there's algorithmic, algorithmic trading. And even this, like you started mentioning in, in one podcast I was listening to, you got phone calls from analysts after you sold your company so they could get insight on, on that company. Is this true? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's kind of a misnomer that you, you need to be better than the average investor to be able to pick stocks better. You really need to be better than like every other investor because the, the price isn't being set by the average investor. The price is being set based on all those different people you just mentioned. And so, yeah, like after I sold my company and left the, sold my company and left the company that bought us, um, that was a publicly traded company. And these analysts would call me and offer to pay me like many hundreds of dollars an hour just to ask me questions. And you know, they're all very careful to say this is not insider trading. We're not looking for like next quarter's numbers. And you know, I was like a little bit like I don't really like what they do. I don't really think that they're like solving their own problems. But I also really don't really think they're probably successful because they're up against everybody else who's doing the same thing. And so they're paying me hundreds of dollars an hour to try to get some insight into like the market or the growth opportunity or the size of the market or the threats faced by competitors or whatever they're trying to figure out. Um, But they're doing that against other people who also have that same information. And so they're just paying more money to basically get the same return on average. But you're right. It's like a very 
you know, you can't just be smarter than your neighbor and say, oh, that dude's buying Tesla. He's an idiot. I'm going to buy Apple because there's lots of players that have lots of information that we don't have in this game. And they're all competing against each other and they're setting the prices of the market. Which once again, now leads us to what you mentioned. Why not just buy them all? <laughs> Which uh, seems like a really time consuming activity to have to do. I don't even know how many stocks are out there in the US uh, stock market, let alone the international stock market out there. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what a mutual fund is? Right. So this problem of like picking and choosing stocks goes back many, many decades. And, you know, way pre-internet, you would go to a stockbroker and say, I would like to buy one share of IBM or I'd like to buy one share of Sears Roebuck or I don't know, I'm trying to name companies that probably <laughs> existed before the internet. Um, and the, the stockbroker would do that for you. But then maybe next time you go to the stockbroker and say, hey, I know you've been buying a bunch of these individual companies. I've got a better idea for you. Why don't you just put your money into this fund? It's called a mutual fund because a bunch of people mutually all put their money in. And then there's one dude who's the mutual fund manager. He lives in Manhattan or Chicago or something. Then he is constantly buying and selling stocks for mm. you. And then instead of you having to own and keep track of these individual shares of stocks, the mutual fund manager is doing all that inside of this fund, which is basically like a shared bank account. And then you, you keep track of your, not you, but like, track is kept of your shared ownership in this uh, mutual fund. And then as all the stocks do well and pay, pay profits, that goes back to you. And so that's what a mutual fund is. And that is like basically a great service provided to, you know, individual consumer investors by the financial services industry so that we can like invest more broadly and more diversified with like less complexity. That makes sense to me. It, it, um, almost goes back to what we were talking about. Me as the ordinary investor probably isn't smarter than the majority of people, but why not just give my money to somebody that's really smart? What's the problem with that, though? Um, now we're going to talk about these like one or two percent fees that these fund, these actively funds um, take on. That doesn't sound like a huge number to me. And if they're going to do five to ten percent better than I do, why not give up one or two percent there? So yeah, and you know, a mutual fund isn't a terrible thing to do. People still successfully invest in mutual funds today, like our parents did for their entire careers. Um, but the problem with mutual funds is basically that, or the problem with what we call actively managed mutual funds, which is where they're actively trading these stocks, is that they charge, you know, relatively high fees, you know, in the tune to, to the tune of one to two percent of the fund value per year. So, for example, if you put a thousand dollars in, they're going to take one percent, which is ten dollars, which ain't that bad. But if you put a hundred thousand dollars, and they're going to take a thousand dollars per year as long as you hold it, and in the example you gave, what if, if they're making, if they're doing 5% per year better than me, why wouldn't you pay 1% or 2%? The answer is you would, of course, like that math totally makes sense. But the problem is, it's impossible to pick mutual funds going forward that are going to outperform the market. And study after study after study after study of these actively managed mutual funds show that they do not beat the market net of their fees, because they're all competing against each other, right? It's like this, it's this teeter-totter everyone's trying to get above but like no one can like actually make progress above above the average because the average is the average and so when you are trying to beat the average but then you're you're losing fees on top of that on average you're going to lose the market net like the amount of your fees and, and it's pretty easy to look up you can look up a mutual fund and uh look up their fees and oftentimes they underperform about by the amount of their fees that said the mutual fund industry is very tricky and they know that people 
look at the past performance and that they think that is going to imply the future performance. Again, study after study after study say that is not true. The ones that did the best in the past are no more or less likely to do better in the future. But what they'll do is they'll have you know, 50 different funds. Two of them will outperform the market, 48 won't. They will get rid of those 48, and then they will look at the two and say, look how smart we are. We've beat the market. When it wasn't smart, it was just pure randomness and luck. And then going forward, money flows in and then you know, rinse and repeat. Mm. That's interesting. So let's assume that nobody can really be better than average on a consistent basis. And as you were mentioning too, they're also racking up costs associated with trading um, taxes and trading fees and things like that as well. So they're actually in the long run, not even performing at the level that we could perform at as well, maybe one or 2% below that. And we're going to hand over one or 2% to them as well on all of this. I'm I'm curious if you have an Ashley Amanda example for the one or 2% that does, once again, for me to hand that off to somebody and I perform just a little bit worse, um, it doesn't get, you know, for me to just send a check to somebody and they take care of all of that for 1% doesn't seem like the end of the world. But once again, you gave us that little example with the savings account and the um, investing piece to it. Is there also something similar on the 1% fee that you have to share that can demonstrate how big of a gap over the long run that that might actually cause? Yes. Um, and to be fair, it's not the end of the world. You know, people live long, happy, fruitful lives investing in high-fee mutual funds. It doesn't make them bad people. It doesn't mean their lives are going to be empty. But I would say it's not financially optimal. And as an example, in that Ashley example where Ashley was putting, or Amanda was putting 500 bucks a month for 40 years, she ended up with $2.9 million. If instead of getting her full 10%, she paid a 2% annual fee and performed as she would expect it, 2% lower net of those fees, she'd be getting an 8% return. So 8% versus 10%, they're both big numbers. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But instead of $2.9 million, she would end up with $1.6 million. So it's about 40% less. So, you know, and they're both big numbers, 2.9, 1.6. But, you know, you're basically for this like very slight service you're getting by having someone else click the buttons on which, which investments to buy. Um, you're getting 40% less money at retirement, which is, can be devastating, right? Like, let's say you want to buy a million dollar house. If you have 2.9, you have 2 million bucks left over. If you have 1.6, now you basically are house poor and you're not going to be able to sustain retirement there. So that's, that's not something you want to give up, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if, if clicking buttons really, um, <laughs> if $1.3 million really constitutes uh, um, a, just clicking some buttons. And you know, that really kind of brings back to that basic foundational concept of compound interest, which if people want to learn more about that, I, we did have an episode out. That's episode E39 with Sean Mullaney. He goes over a lot of compound investing. So let's not spend too much time there. Instead, let's, let's talk about an alternative to mutual funds, or I, it's not really even an alternative. It, it, it is a mutual fund, but let's talk about index funds. You know your stuff, Justin. I like it. And I agree, like all these terms can be very confusing. And, and just to like keep things simple, which is my favorite thing to do, at the end of the day, the most important things are to spend less money than you make and invest the difference. Yes. If you live below your means and invest early and often, even if you're not doing it perfectly, you're going to build wealth. If you are like, whoa, index on mutual fund, this is too confusing. I'm just going to spend all my money. Then you're going to be broke your whole life. And so, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Mm. I know we're kind of, this is kind of like my little pitch in the middle of the, in the Love middle. that. Um, but so, yeah, that said, 
an index fund is a type of mutual fund, which you know, which is, and these things get a little bit confusing. And also to your point, I know I'm going to get your answer, but I just love talking about this stuff. Go for it. Also to your point about like the 1.3 million deficit to get someone else to click the buttons. Like sometimes I'm talking to a friend, I'm like, hey, let's go open you a Roth IRA. Let's invest in some index funds. And they say, I don't want to do it. I don't feel like it. I'm busy. I was like, what if I paid you $100,000 an hour to do it? They'd be like, are you kidding? Like pulling their hair, they, like their mind explodes. Like, you know, you can easily learn this in like five or six hours, like if that, um, and, and it's going to make you $1.3 million. So that gives you 13 hours at $100,000 an hour. So they're probably making more like $200,000 an hour. And that's like how important this little tiny piece of your life is mm. about the investing and the like minimizing fees and investing optimally. That's how important it is. Okay. So an index fund, my personal favorite way to invest, it's a type of mutual fund. You put your money in just with a bunch of other people, but instead of there being a smart mutual fund manager in New York or Chicago who's picking and choosing stocks for you, an index fund simply buys all of the stocks in an index, which is simply a fancy word for a list. And so there are companies who maintain lists of companies. So for example, one of them is Standard & Poor's. And so you probably have heard of the S&P 500. Their entire, the S&P 500 is just, this list of 500 companies. You know, these days, the list of companies isn't that impressive, but, you know, back 50 years ago when there weren't, like, computers or internet, it was, it, re- it required an entire business to maintain this list, and that business, you know, maintain, re- remains until this day. And so, if you wanted to buy an S&P 500 index fund, you would simply put your money into one single thing. You go to a website, you click buy, you click S&P 500 index fund, and then you would own the 500 biggest stocks in the U.S., and you don't Apple and Amazon and Tesla and ExxonMobil and Nike and Walmart and all of them. And then as those companies profit and go up in value, those profits and increase in value are funneled back to the index fund and thus funneled back to you. That's what an index fund is. That sounds pretty simple. <laughs> I absolutely I, I love that concept. That uh, that makes a ton of sense for me. Gets rid of a lot of things that we are talking about. Once again, you you really can't outperform the average on a long-term basis just because of the randomness and um, you know, there's not really knowledge that can be brought in because once again, this this concept of market efficiency is really the sum total of all knowledge that's out there. So there's very few things, if not anything, that you know that someone else doesn't know. <laughs> so why not buy them all? So love index funds. I think that makes a ton of sense for um, for people as well. You mentioned this like three fund portfolio, which is like um, a U.S. stock market, international, and bonds as well. You could go, you can make, you can go one step easier to all of this rather than having to buy these three index funds out there. There's, there's one more step, and the only reason I bring that up is early on, you're you're speaking mostly to twenty somethings, and you would advise. I, I know you would advise us to mostly lean into stocks for the most part. We have a long we have a long run ahead of us in terms of what um, our our you know capacity to take volatility in the market. So if it's up or down anywhere from you know ten percent next year, it doesn't really matter because once again in the long run it's got to it's got to rough out to that average of ten percent or I think you mentioned it was eleven point three in the last forty years, correct? Yeah, something just over eleven okay. percent. Okay, cool. So that makes sense to me. Um, but I start to worry about too, like oh now I need to go and remember. Later on in life, like 25 years from now, I can't remember what I need to do 25 hours from now, let alone 25 years from now. I need to remind myself to go out there and sell some of my stock and buy bonds. You got an easier strategy for all of this. Let's talk about target date funds. Yes. 
So you're right. If when I talk to 20 year olds, they want to be like hyper aggressive and like, you know, do them things that's going to get the most growth. But when I talk to like 65 or 70 year olds, they don't want to see their lifetime's work and nest egg get cut in half because of something the president decided to do or because of Middle East conflict or whatever, you know? Um, and so they're much more likely to have a more conservative needs. And so then you want this like kind of what's called a progression or an, a reallocation of your assets over time from the more hyper growth, hyper aggressive stocks when you're young to more conservative income producing and cap capital preservation bonds. And so, like you said, you could buy these things individually and then reallocate every year starting at around 40 or 45 and move a little bit towards bonds over the next 20 years. And then when you're 65, you know, you have that asset allocation, but there's this other tool called a target date index fund, which basically is designed for people of a certain age. So for example, if you are 25 right now, that means you were born in what, 1995 or something. Mm -hmm. So you add 65 years to your birth year, 1995 plus 60 is 2060. And so you can go find a 2060 target date index fund. The 2060 is like your target retirement age. Then you just put all your money into this one exact thing. And it looks like it's just one thing, but really inside of it are thousands of US stocks, thousands of international stocks, thousands of bonds constantly being rebalanced as time goes on and reallocated towards bonds as you age. Just buying that one thing, which is low fee, simple, convenient, is virtually optimal investing. And anything that derivates from that is like just kind of gets into the world of speculation. Interesting. Yeah, I love that. I am born in 1993 and invest in the 2060 target date fund as well. That's majority of my um, different retirement accounts and brokerage accounts are almost 100% invested in, in target date funds. Um, so love oh, that. Right. I ran into that whenever I, I ran across your content. I was very overwhelmed. You're going into HR's office first day. You got to pick what you're going to invest your 401k into. And there's all these, this like, five, six pages of just different things that you can invest in. I'm like, whoa, my gosh. And then like the next day I ran into your content and you're like, yeah, just find the target date fund, pick the, the date there and, and invest in that. And I was like, oh yeah. And I found it and there was like a section of target date funds and it was 2040, 2045, 2050, 2055, 2060. I'm like, oh, nice. that's me. <laughs> and I invested nice. in that. One thing I would add is that there are, I mean, if, if everything was simple, I would be out of a job, I guess. But I'd love to be out of a job because I think everything should be simple, but that's not the way the world works. There are two different types of target date funds. that are actively managed, like that's where you pay the smart guy to pick and choose the stocks for you. And there are target date index funds. And the way you basically tell is by looking at the expense ratio. And so every mutual fund or ETF has an annual fee you pay for being in it. Like I said, those actively managed ones are usually between like 0.5% and 2%. That's what I would consider like high to like extremely high fees. Index funds are usually around 0.2% or lower. And they often have the word index in them, although they don't always. So for example, Vanguard's target funds are all index funds, but they don't include that word index for whatever reason. And so, you know, when you're picking your 401k investments, if, if there's like a target date that has a 0.1 or 0.2% expense ratio, like amazing, put all your money in, you're set. If your target date funds are more like 1% or higher, then I might not go with the target date fund in that scenario because that's getting in that 2.9 million versus 1.6 million situation where if you're getting crushed by fees the whole time, you might be better off choosing two or three different individual index funds 
if they are offered. And some 401ks plans suck and don't offer any low fee investments. And in that case, you just prioritize investing in your Roth IRA first and otherwise hold your nose and just pick something. And then when you, you know, complain to HR and then when you eventually quit your job, you can transfer those assets out of there into a, a better investment. Mm, that's a good callback. So let's double back on that a little bit. So once again, that's called an expense ratio. And the easiest way that I end up finding out what that is, I find the ticker, the ticker symbol of whatever I'm going to invest in. I just Google that. And it seems like it always pops up right there. Um, and it's like one of the first things that I can see under the details of what the, the fund has. So once again, you mentioned anything over 0.5, so half a percentage point to 2% is pretty high. I think the majority of mine, all of my individual is in Fidelity and I'm, I'm in their zero, um, 0% funds. Um, uh, nice. That So that's that's great. I don't pay anything for that. I have a couple in FC Rocks as well, which I think is 0.06. Um, I just parked it there before they they turned out their uh, 0% um, expense ratio funds too. But but yeah, 0.0% um, is crazy, crazy cheap to, to have and invest in something. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of living in the golden age of, of consumer investing in the US where you basically never should be paying any transactional fee. You know, if you go back 50 years ago, pre-internet, you know, you'd have to go to a stock broker and you would pay them high fees. And so to invest, you'd be in this high fee situation. Um, and you also now pay little to no you know, annual expense ratios. You know, the Fidelity, as you mentioned, has four that are 0.0 uh, expense ratio. You know, I kind of shrugged my shoulder at those. That's great. I'm glad that like we've, we've reached rock bottom on those expense ratios or whatever. But, you know, every, you know, Vanguard, Schwab, Fidelity, like everyone offers index funds and ETFs that are 0.0 or 0.03 or 0.04. Yeah. And that, you know, we're kind of getting into splitting hairs at that point. You know, we're talking about 2.965 million versus 2.9 seven million, you know, it's like, it's, it's so many decimals down, you won't even really notice it. And so I'd say anything under 0.2, you're in like the very good range. And yeah, it's, it's beautiful to be a, an investor in the US right now. People who don't live in the US, by the way, don't enjoy this like uh, land of low fees because they often still do have both higher expense ratios and transactional fees. And so they have to make decisions about do I invest every month or do I invest once a quarter because I know I'm going to be hit with this big fee just for like, you know, an entry fee just for, for buying the fund. Um, we don't have to worry about that. We can just put the money in as soon as we get it. So something that I also hear from my age group as well is <laughs> I, I, I start to explain this concept that we just went through over the last 20 minutes. And it really just comes down to the very end. Index funds aren't sexy. It is just not exciting to invest in them. I Lots of people love to see the up and down roller coaster. I um, Robinhood's been great for driving down some of these uh, fees that are involved in it, but also it's really kind of um, created a little bit of like gambling mindset in terms of um, investing, which I'm not crazy about. But to get your to get their fix, you have this 90-10 rule. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, you're right. And I actually was thinking about that with target date index funds too, which is there's lots of hate out there on target date index funds or just target date funds in general. And you know, honestly, most of the hate usually surrounds the expense ratio or you know whatever. But but usually that hate is coming from like insurance salesmen or actively managed mutual fund managers or you know people who have an incentive to not have you do the simplest thing because they're trying to get some money from you along the way and and index funds also don't have salesmen you know no one is getting commission from selling an index fund because the expenses are so low there's not like a horde of commissioned salespeople who are incentivized to sell and so as someone that's just existing in pop culture 
you don't hear a lot about it because there's not Super Bowl ads for it and things like that. Um, but you do hear things about like GameStop and Robinhood and and the exciting speculative stuff, and so that can like tempt people to get into investing, what I call speculating that type. Um, but I I do have a ninety ten rule, which is basically with ninety percent of your portfolio, buy and hold index funds. Do the thing that's guaranteeing you your fair share of market growth, minimizing fees, owning all the stocks, collecting the growth of the the world economy. But then with ten percent of your portfolio, like give yourself permission to go nuts. Try to buy GameStop, trade options, buy crypto, uh, you know, pick and shoe stocks or whatever you want. And I think that it's, it's nice for a few reasons. One, it's like a release valve on this FOMO. You're like, ah, oh, I'm doing the boring thing. All my, I hear my friends are making a zillion dollars by, you know, it's almost always full of shit. It's like buying the lotto. And even if someone does win the lotto, doesn't mean you should be doing it. But nevertheless, it, it releases some of that FOMO where you can play the game too. Um, two, it legitimately is a lotto ticket you know if you do if you're 10 percent, if you happen to pick the next amazon and you buy it at two dollars a share and then it goes up to two thousand dollars a share you will make a ton of money is that going to happen almost certainly not um but you know if it does great and then the other reason it's nice is because it's only 10 percent. so like if you are not better than the market as all of us generally aren't over time at least you're not going to be like losing your entire future millions because that's going to be taken care of by your 90%. So that's the 90-10 rule. 90% index funds, 10% go nuts. Mm, I love that. So one more pushback that I get whenever explaining this concept is I don't want to wait 40 years to retire, which brings me to something that you posted, I don't know, not too long ago, this two-step plan to retire in 12 years. So if you want to put your head down and really exponent, exponent this, how does somebody do that in two steps? So there's no magic way to make money faster. You can't just become better at trading, become better at picking stocks. That's not reliable. It's much more likely to hurt you than help you. And it's much more likely to keep you broke for 40 years. And when you talk to an old person who's broke, they've been like chasing get rich quick overnight over the last 40 years. That's not a good strategy. You know, if you know, if you don't want to work for 40 years, you're definitely not going to want to work for 60 years. So uh, I wouldn't go that way. The way to accelerate this process is simply to do the two rules harder. The two rules, again, are live below your means and invest early and often. And so you live further below your means. So for example, if you, I forget that exact 12-year example, but I'll give you the 15-year example, which I remember off the top of my head. If you want to retire in 15 years, if you're dead broke, $0 net worth, and you want to retire in 15 years, you live on half of your take-home salary. Half of your take-home salary, you spend. The other half, you invest. 15 years later, your investments will have grown to a level that it will provide a you can withdraw from them every single year the same as what you used to be spending every single year. And your investments will basically be extremely unlikely to ever go to zero. In fact, they're very likely to continue growing and growing and growing, at which case you can reassess and spend even more. That's how you do it. You just spend half of your money. You know, that's not bad for 15 years. If you're 22 and you want to do it that way, even when you're 37, which is four years younger than me. And about when I retired from selling an internet company for millions, you can be retired too. Just spend half your money. Yeah, that, that gets me really excited. I'm on a similar path with in, investing pretty heavily and, and living below my means. And let's talk a little bit about that. We, we hung around your, your second rule a lot, which once again is invest early and often. We hadn't really talked that much about live below your means. So throughout your career as an entrepreneur, you never spent more than $36,000, which is wild, especially considering you live in San Diego. Let's bring. <laughs> 
Let's bring this concept into something I recently saw, which was your spending day, your $5 spending day versus your $500 spending day. So you set out to spend $5 on food. And then you, the next, maybe the next day, I, I'm not sure if it was the day after, um, the video made it seem like the next day, but the next day- It was, that was my real life. It was okay, the actual okay. next day. <laughs> the, the next day you went and spent $500 on food. So tell me, what did you learn from that experience? Yeah. So when I was growing my company, my max take-home salary was $36,000 a year. And I didn't even spend all that. I was still investing. I was living on you know, 30000 a year or something and living in high cost of living San Diego. And that was, you know, that was 10 years ago or whatever. And so it was, things were for sure cheaper back then. Um, so this video I made was just like, as you described, for one day, I lived on $5 a day for food. And I did it. You know, I, I'm, I'm a big dude. I'm 6'4", 200 pounds. I eat a lot of food. Um, but I legit had like 2,600 calories, like 150 grams of protein. I was like kind of measured all my macros to <clears throat> make sure I wasn't just cheating and eating like all empty carbs or something. Um, and, you know, it wasn't, I, I guess the worst part about it was that like I wasn't really making recipes. I was just like eating chicken and rice and yeah. vegetables and um, tuna and oatmeal and bananas. That was basically my meal. I'm living on a few things, but, um, but I, but it did take a lot of planning. I had to like, went online i like searched for where's the cheapest grocery store i had to drive for i had to drive past several grocery stores to get there you know, you know and so i don't mean to make it sound easy because it wasn't easy and if you're living in poverty and you have no choice but to live in five dollars a day it's like a terrible situation and like i want people to not be living in poverty um but if you are someone who thinks that i can't spend less than a thousand dollars a month on food like of course you can like it just takes more work it takes more planning you have to like Make your make your meal plan ahead of time and just go buy cheap things and not just be frivolously spending on, you know, whatever is looks the best or whatever is the closest or whatever. Um, which is exactly what I did the next day. <clears throat> In fact, turns out frivolous spending wasn't even enough. So I started that day by buying avocado toast from Uber Eats. And it was forty two dollars. It was like forty one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was legit forty two dollars. I mean, I also got a smoothie, but the smoothie and the avocado toast plus delivery tax tip, all that stuff was 42 bucks and which is obviously an absurd amount of money spent on avocado toast but still wasn't even a dent in my 500 dollars um and then for dinner by the time i you know i spent like 200 bucks on lunch and then for dinner i had to spend like whatever the remaining was 250 or something um and i at that point i couldn't even buy the most expensive bottle of booze there's like a 350 dollar bottle of wine there's like 180 dollar bottle of sake i got sushi and but but still i like blew through you know another 200 dollars at dinner and that was when I was starting to like try to stay under my $500 budget instead of trying to go. And so it's crazy how fast money can spend too when you're just like swiping the card, you don't care. And so it just is very like, you have to be very purposeful and being very disciplined. Yeah. I love that you had like 40 or $50 left at the end too. And you like Uber eats like cookies or something and just tip the remaining to the driver. <laughs> I, yeah, I gave him 40 bucks and then he's like, I'm a YouTuber too. I was like, all right. <laughs> Everybody's a YouTuber. <laughs> that's that's incredible. So, um, of course, I, I think you probably found a little bit of balance in there. Of course, I think living on $5 a day would be tough because of all the planning and the stress that's involved in that. But once again, I it from your closing comments on that video, it didn't bring you a lot of joy or happiness to spend $500 either. So somewhere, of, of, of course, closer to the $5 range, but maybe with a little bit more flexibility so you can have recipes and there was like one random thing, like you, you didn't account for like spices or oils or things. Oh, it was oil because you made the eggs and it was like a terrible um, egg because a bunch of it stuck to the pan. 
So of course, it'd be nice to have a little bit, but you don't need $500 a day. I am kind of curious though, after you became financially independent and you loosened up a little bit on your your spending plan, what have you found? Is there one or two things that you found that you almost wish you would have started spending on money on earlier? I, yeah, I think that like people who are still struggling with money often think that there's this direct correlation between making more and spending more and more happiness. And I don't think that's true. Either it's true just a little bit or not true at all, but it's definitely not true a lot. And like if I charted my happiness in life, you know, if, if there's a big line chart from across all my ages, um, I, I honestly don't think it would move at all. Cause you know, I, I became a millionaire overnight when I sold my company. And then I've since now my net worth today is about 4.5 million. So not, it's more than double what it used to be. I don't, you know, it, it doesn't correlate at all to that, you know, and even the five versus $500 day, I wasn't happier on the $500 day. In fact, I like kind of felt like a little bit empty. I felt gross, you know, you have like, and, and sometimes when you spend money, you get this like short little endorphin boost, you know, if you drive a new car off the lot or you go to a fancy restaurant, but then it's so short lived. It's not actually happiness. It's not making you like, and, and so people like chase that high and they think that if they get more money, they'll get more of that high. But it, it, it's almost like, you know, chasing a drug high or something like that. The more you do it, the harder it is to get high, right? And real, real happiness comes from like, you know, being physically fit and having strong relationships and, you know, loving how you spend your time and things like that. And for sure, money can like, um, not answering your question, but I'll try and answer it. <laughs> for sure, money can, money can like, open up some opportunities for you. Like I treasure the fact that I don't have to work for a boss that I hate. Like if I was going to work every day and my boss was being a gigantic dick, like that would probably make me less happy a lot of the day. You know, if I came home to like a loving family, maybe I'd be much more happy. I don't know. But like, um, you know, you know, money doesn't, you know, money can help you get out of those situations, but then it doesn't just like create happiness. You still have to do that for yourself. That said, what would I wish I would have spent money on sooner? Uh, probably healthier food. I'd say like in college, I was like, so I was a, I was an athlete in college and I was like, just living on, on like a uh, spaghetti every day. I, I just, I was so hungry. Cause I, I'm this big guy. And I'd be running long distances. I ran track. And so like, I would just be burning crazy calories, but I didn't have a lot of money. So I was just like buying, like, I eat like a pound of spaghetti a night. And it was like, like, I'm like, I didn't really know anything about nutrition, but I'm sure like my macros and my nutrients and that's like, it was all wrong. And I think, it, I think like I, my performance suffered from it. And so I wish I would have done like been a little bit more purposeful about that. I know. I don't I don't really have a lot of regrets. I mean, I don't care about cars. In fact, like I liked my my old crappy cars just as much as I like my new car, which is a Mazda, you know. I don't know. I don't really have a good answer for that. I don't really find a lot of joy in spending money, I guess. So Jeremy, as we're closing up this conversation, I do want to turn the focus to personal finance club. And as you were mentioning happiness isn't spending money. It's, it's, you know, having a sense of purpose. And, um, you know, our, our, uh, first question here too, was around that, that first year after retirement and, and really not having tension or something to really get you excited every single day, which seemed like what turned into personal finance club. And <laughs> if I have this right too, I think it was like originally like just a casual meetup between you and friends to discuss personal finances. Is this, is this true? Yeah. You've done your homework. This is like the most prepared podcast I've ever done. Um, I mean, so yeah, before personal finance club ever existed, which is like my current business, 
I would like hang out with friends and they'd, you know, I'd talk to them about money just because I love it and it's my passion. And they'd be like, like, I'd be like, we got to open up you a Roth IRA. Let's go. We'll like meet at your place and we'll grab beers and drink <laughs> and open up IRAs. Um, and then we would start jokingly call it personal finance club just because like every, you know, different friends, different times, whatever, but we'd meet and hang out and drink and open up Roth IRAs or whatever. Um, and so then when I decided to start this more publicly and like try to, you know, spread the message of financial literacy, I actually had a couple other names. I think I was like Mr. Money Pants for a minute, but then I was like, no, it sounds too much like Mr. Money Mustache. Yeah. And then I was Grasshopper Finance and I was like, I don't know, it just sounds like some like douchey, like Wall Street thing or something. Yeah. And then I was like, I don't know, I still like Personal Finance Club. And and the domain was taken, personalfinanceclub.com wasn't available, but I was like, I looked up and they're, they're selling it for like 800 bucks. I was like, oh, it's a lot of money to spend on like just some like ridiculous hobby thing. And I was able to talk them down to 500 bucks and decide just to like use some of my money and, and buy it, which is one nice thing about money is you can just solve little problems like that. Although to this day, I don't know if I'm better off. Maybe Grasshopper Finance would have been as good or better. Who knows? Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I did. So now I'm personal finance club and I got the domain and I like it. How many people have you helped directly open up an IRA? Do you have any idea? Like, have I personally <laughs> sat down with them, like watched them click the buttons? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. A couple dozen, maybe, you know, wow. not, not that many. That's um, impressive though. But that's what you I guys mean, did. You just like found a new person to indoctrinate into this, this, IRA clan and I mean, grab the beer and it wasn't went like over. A, it wasn't like we were doing outreach like a missionary or something like that. It was more just like, in, like I just got a text from a, I play volleyball. And so like everyone who plays volleyball, they're having conversations like, you're not investing. You got to call Jeremy. And like, like this guy, he's like, hey, Jeremy, I heard you can blah, blah. I was like, let's do it, bro. And then I would sell him on my pyramid scheme. <laughs> MLM. Yeah. Your real retirement plan, I guess. <laughs> right. I know. Gotta, well, that's cool. So it's going to pay off. Exactly. So let's tell the audience a little bit about um, Personal Finance Club. Of course, I, you're, you're not having people over drinking beer and, and opening up IRAs, but it's grown into something bigger than that. Now you have an Instagram account out there, a YouTube, a website where you um, create this amazing content. Why don't, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about it? Yeah, the goal is just to help people win with money. You know, we want to be an engine for good for, you know, a couple of years. I just did this for free. There was no, it was just like my retirement hobby. Um, and I just wanted to like spread the message of financial literacy and people who want to get started investing and don't know how this is like the place to go. Um, now I do sell one product, which is a course, which sounds really douchey and I hate it. And, you know, you can for, for sure get everything that's in the course for free everywhere else. But it is our like one little line of business that I use to like now I have two full-time employees that we create even more content and reach out even more. And so yeah, it's just a, you know, we call it a, a you know, group of champions of the individual investor spreading financial literacy, helping people and get started investing. That's super cool. Yeah, the the course is great as well. Um, really enjoyed it. I jump on pretty much any webinar that you end up hosting as well. And you're just so giving with so much of your content. And I think you even mentioned a couple of times too. It's like even if you can't buy the course, just consume the content because there's not a whole lot of difference between the the what's in the course and what's what the content is. You're not trying to hide anything or or keep something close to the vest. No, I mean there's there's no secrets in the course. I mean it it it's convenient because it's it's true and it's the right thing to do, but it's also good marketing for my business. Like just one strange aspect of businesses in my experience, the more you give for free, the more likely people want to pay you. Um, you know, if, and you can see this just by looking at like a terrible Instagram account of a small business where like all they post about 
is like click the link for discounts or whatever. Nobody wants to do that, right? Uh, but what, what I do on my Instagram is I just give it all away for free as I try to make it as good and as punchy and as actionable and as simple and as clear as possible every single day. And then people are like tripping over themselves to, to give me money. And not because like I've been keeping secrets, to, but just because I haven't. And, you know, it's actually just nice that it works, you know, both ways. Mm, that's cool. Well, um, we'll, we'll do a, a special for this episode. I'll, I'll buy a voucher for your course um, for anybody that post on um, Instagram, just screenshot this episode and tag Jeremy and I and tell us a favorite takeaway. Um, I'll pick one person that does that after the end of 30 days. Um, and you can have uh, Jeremy's course for free. But Jeremy- Nice. You don't need to buy it though. I'll give it to you. <laughs> I, appreciate, I appreciate that, man. Um, let's, let's wind this conversation down. I'd like to ask my final question to you. If you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? This is a hard question. Well, I'm going to, just, I'm going to say, not going to be investing because that's too much of a cop-out. And so one thing that I've learned as being like a 41-year-old grown-up guy now who's been in the world for a while is school is kind of weird because everything that you learn in school is like learning how to like follow directions. It's like your teacher gives you the structure and then how, how well can you act, you know, execute that structure. But then when you get in the real world, no one gives you that structure. And like kind of businesses do, they give you places where you can apply for a job and like execute. But like real life is really about like creating your own structure and executing it. And so, and that's true for like starting a business, for like becoming physically fit, for deciding what your career path is going to be. Like everything that's like, you know, especially like the mega successful people who are like becoming billionaires, they're not just like following the steps like they learned in school. They're like learning how to like forge their own path and create their own structure and create structure for other people to like support their mission. Um, And so I think I would like, you know, just kind of give the unschool class where it's like, you know, instead of follow these steps and memorize these facts and regurgitate them back or whatever, I'm not trying to like, I'm a big fan of education. I'm a big fan of school. It's like largely, but I still think like this one little piece may be missing. And so that's what I do. Like you cover things like, like leadership and starting businesses. I'm looking at my notes now because I thought about this ahead of time. I guess setting, setting structure, like forging your own path. I know it's kind of like a little bit squishy, um, but I, I think that like kind of like giving that message about how to like not just do what you're told is pretty important for like finding real success in the world. Mm. And you'd be a really great instructor too. It's, you, you have these like really interesting dichotomies between like your programmer brain that's really like system driven and black and white. And then your entrepreneur brain that's like quick problem solving and long-term thinking. So I think that would lend itself well to, to teaching this class and I would for sure sign up for it. Thanks, Justin. Well, maybe I'll make that. I mean, right now we only have one course and it's <laughs> keeping us plenty busy, but maybe one day. I don't know. I'd have to figure out. How to, 16 weeks is a long time, too. It is. Like, oh, <laughs> it's a long time. A lot of content for that. Yeah. Well, maybe just like the first hour would be like, you got to learn how to forge your own path. The next 15 and a half weeks are on you. <laughs> that would be a hilarious assignment. I would love you that. Just got, you just got scammed into taking this course. Well, Jeremy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for volunteering so much of your time to come on. I know you're a busy guy, um, but I've had such a blast researching you and, and um, following you along over the last year and a half. So thank you again for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is such a well, it's very extremely flattering for you to have so much knowledge about what I've been up to. It's amazing. It's also scary to be reminded that like the stuff I post on the internet, people actually like can see like years later even. But yeah, thank you for having me, Justin. 
Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. If you want to connect with me, send me a message on Instagram. I'm at Justin Lee Peters. You can find show notes with links to everything we discussed today at justinpeters.co. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.